Optimal health for high performers. This is the Health Upgrade Podcast with Dr. Nawaz Habib. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of the Health Upgrade Podcast. I am Dr. Nawaz Habib. I'm here once again with JP Erico, our co-host for season two. Hi, JP. Hi, how are you? Doing well, doing well. Today's topic is something that it's very close to your heart. It's something that you're very interested in, very exciting for both of us, but you seem to be the one that really loves this stuff. And so I'm really excited to kind of dig into neuroimmune dysfunction and development and kind of how our immune system dictates the development of our brain and dysfunction when that does not work. And maybe what inputs are going on environmentally that can create dysfunction in those stages and how those dysfunctions can lead to many conditions, both early on in childhood, later on in life, and uh, even in the middle of life as well. We'll talk about different conditions like autism, schizophrenia, Alzheimer's, and Parkinson's. And we'll get into an understanding of how the immune system plays a vital role in the development of a good functioning brain and in the development of a lot of these conditions as well when dysfunction does occur in those cells. Yeah, we tackled some of this on an earlier episode, but I'd like to dig a little deeper into it now that we have uh, the opportunity, because there's so many details that when you understand them, they start to add new questions into the mix. And understanding how to answer those questions will help us come up with better therapies and better treatments for patients. Yeah, asking better questions always results in better answers, right? And and new avenues by which we can do good work. So let's begin by talking about the involvement of the immune system within the development of the brain and how it kind of starts off early on in that developmental process in the fetus. Sure. So it's helpful to understand how the structure of the brain actually leads to its function. There's a layer of cells that sit on the outside of the brain. That's where all the folds and invaginations that we see are on a typical model of the brain. Why they exist is because there's a very large sheet, if you will, very thin, but large sheet of repeating modules, if you will. It's called, that whole sheet is called the neocortex. And the neocortex is where all of our advanced thinking happens. That's where we come up with things like the cures for diseases and mathematical formulas, and we write novels and things like that. That's where all the higher level thinking happens. And these modules that are called neocortical columns, there's 300 million of them in the average human, and they extend around the interior portion of the brain, but they need to be connected to one another. And so there are long connections that connect one area of the brain to the other, and also into the interior of the brain. And those are referred to as white matter tracks. Those are axons, long axons that are myelinated, that are connecting individual columns and the outputs of one to the inputs of the other, et cetera. All of that structure has to be built. And so the question is, how does it get built from you know, a single cell that's been fertilized? How does that happen? And so at the very beginning, just a few days after conception, as there's you know massive dividing of cells and you're creating populations of cells that are starting to have specific purposes, one of them is the neural tube. That's where your brain ultimately is going to develop. That's where the neural progenitor cells 
are located and they're dividing and populating that area with the precursor cells of the brain. About seven days into gestation, another group of cells, which are not part of that population, but are actually innate immune cells, macrophages, specifically from the yolk sac, will migrate into that tissue and begin, frankly, taking over, dictating how that developmental process occurs. Those cells become our embryonic microglial cells. They will reside in the brain for your entire life. And their purpose at the early stages are to do all of the things necessary to control how the brain is developed. And we talked a little bit about this before, but white matter track organization, the organization of cells in the brain, where those neocortical columns, how they get constructed and where they're placed, all of the rest of the areas of the brain from the brainstem up, all of that has to be constructed. And the microglial cells are through really, frankly, one of the widest diversity of capabilities of any cell in the body are contributing and controlling how all of that structure is developed. And so they do that and they themselves will begin to differentiate slightly from one another based on spatial location inside that structure. So in some ways, it's almost like those scenes in, in movies like The Avengers, where Tony Stark as Iron Man has a tiny little thing that he's carrying like on his eyeglasses or on a ring or something like that. And he presses a button and all of a sudden, all of this armor sort of grows around him. That's what's happening in our brain. There's the potential to grow, but how it's organized and how it's controlled has to happen sort of simultaneously. So it's a remarkable process. And unfortunately, if those microglial cells are impacted in a negative way by inflammation, either maternal inflammation during pregnancy or early on in life, that can lead to developmental problems that lead to a variety of different conditions. And those conditions are different from one another depending on when and where that inflammation occurs. If it's global versus local, if it's in utero at certain times of gestation versus other times in early development, even into adolescence. And, and as we're going to talk about, even into old age, neurodevelopmental and neurodegenerative conditions can arise. So it's going to be exciting to dig into. Yeah, I always like to visualize this. A lot of people have this preconceived notion with regards to the immune system, with it being simply focused on protection from external stimuli, external possible challenge to us. So bacteria, parasites, viruses, yeast, things that are generally meant to affect us in a negative way, like some sort of environmental trigger, and that the immune system is this barrier. And in one case, in one sense, it absolutely is. But the immune system has this whole other side to it, which is that building progenitor side that is so important in the development of certain areas. And so I always like to visualize it as the immune system does that protective role as one major role. And the other role is that pruning and supporting of normal and optimal growth. I always visualize or picture the idea of the bonsai tree being trimmed in the Karate Kid by Ralph Macchio. And he's just gently making sure that the bonsai tree is growing, but it's growing in the right way, that it's not growing in often random, very similar to the idea of Tony Stark's armor growing around him, the micro armor growing around him in, in a very 
particular manner. Otherwise, it would just be all over the place. And so it has to happen in a very molded, very particular fashion. And that also is dictated by the role of the macrophages within the brain, which we know are the microglial cells and the immune system cells within the central nervous system, the resident guys there. Absolutely. And the other analogy is uh, the sculptor or the potter who takes a big lump of clay and puts it somewhere on a potter's wheel or whatever and begins to sculpt it with his hands. That's really what's happening in the development of the brain. In the early stages, there's a tremendous amount of neurogenesis, lots and lots of cells being created. And the microglial cells will, even at that stage, begin to prune which cells should be where, which cells should connect to one another. But the overwhelming pressure is to create as many connections as possible. We talked about this earlier that in a two-year-old, the density of connections of synapses is so incredibly large. And the process of learning and the process of becoming an adult actually is not the result of more connections being made generally generally is actually the pruning away of connections so that your vision can become optimized, your hearing can become optimized, you can learn how to recognize faces, you can learn how to recognize dangers. All of that is involved actually in the pruning away of synapses and connections and cells. And the job of doing all of that really falls squarely on the shoulders of the microglial cells. And the way they do that is really kind of exciting because it's, it harkens back to that age-old debate between nature versus nurture. You know, the idea that, no, no, our personalities and everything about us is already baked in from birth and from conception based on our genes versus, no, no, there's sort of the epigenetic or environmental pressure that sort of changes how our brains are functioning and how our personalities evolve. Well, it turns out both are really true. There has to be some level to which the structure is baked in. The structure is designed, and we all have different areas of our brains generally in the same areas and locations, and they do the same functions because they're designed that way. Not that they can't flex and do different things, but in general, there's a place in your brain for doing each thing that you're, that you're going to be doing. But how it does it and how it learns to be better at it you know, my children might be better at playing basketball than I am, and I may be better at math than somebody else or whatever. Those things are individualized. But it turns out that the microglial cells, while programmed to do certain things, are heavily influenced by sensory input and internal, almost like internal review of how the brain is functioning. There's checkpoints along the way. The brain is constantly checking to see whether or not it's functioning optimally. And it calls on microglial cells to prune away connections that shouldn't be there. And it does it in a relatively, I think it's intuitively obvious the way it would do it, which is that if there are connections that are not active, well, they get pruned away. And if they are active, then you want to reinforce that. But at the same time, you also want to lower the barrier of that connection to fire because you don't want to have too much excitability built into that specific network. So there's an involved process of sleep and long-term potentiation and phagocytosis and trogocytosis of 
synapses and cells that all are being orchestrated as, again, we've talked about the symphony. Well, the symphony's conductor is the microglial cell because it's doing all of these tasks to make certain that everything is functioning in the way it should. And it's influenced by sensory input and by activity. So there's an activity dependence, a very tragic example of this and how it can go awry is, and not in some organic way, but in sort of an environmental way, is what was found when a lot of people went into some of the satellite countries around the Soviet Union when it broke down. And they went into places like Kazakhstan and those countries where they had lots and lots of orphan children living in orphanages that were state-run. And what they found were these children who were, you know, a year too old that had really never been held, never been, you know, cuddled, never been, you know, treated the way you'd want to treat a, a little baby. They had just been fed, so they kept alive, but they weren't given that sort of affection and emotional support. And what they found was that these children were permanently damaged in their brains, not in some incapable of seeing or incapable of walking or anything like that, because they were able to do those things, but they were somehow long-term emotionally damaged emotionally incapable because those areas of their brain that would have been activated by touch, by being held, by being talked to, by being read to, all of those things just never had the activity necessary to literally survive. And so their microglial cells pruned away those areas of the network that were there. They were structurally provided, but they weren't able to remain because the environment didn't suggest that it needed to be. And so that's a terrible example, but it's an example nonetheless of the process when it goes awry. There are other examples, and I think we're going to get into some of them that are more, we'll call it organic or associated with inflammation that's more traditional inflammation, things like autism and ADHD and schizophrenia, and then later on in life, degenerative disorders, where what's happening in those situations, and we'll get into it in more detail is the long-term damage that's been done finally sort of comes home to roost and the microglial cells that are primed begin to revert back in some ways to the way they were during development and they start to prune the network away aggressively the way you need to in neurodevelopment but don't need to later in life in places where it shouldn't be going on. We'll dig into that in more detail when we get to that. Tragic example for sure, but certainly something to learn from and to use when we are rearing our own children, right? Like I have my five-year-old and my one-year-old and I can see the neural connections being built out on a daily basis. It's wonderful to see that growth and that curiosity and the idea of developing these stronger connections. And you can see as a connection gets built and it gets reinforced over and over. Those neurons that are firing together, wiring together stronger, the ease by which she then recalls particular information. I know those are shoes. I know I'm not supposed to go down the stairs. I know I'm building out these particular neural connections because my parents have reinforced this. The environment has reinforced this. I bumped my head on this thing the other day and I'm not going to do that again. Reinforce those neuroplastic connections. And so those brain development areas grew. And lucky enough for me and my kids, we have that loving connection, just like many of the families and the people that are listening to this. But those examples do tell us about the fact that even love and emotional connection 
will build out particular areas of the brain. So it's just an important one to note and just reinforce when you do become a parent or if you are a parent already to maintain those positive relationships. I do want to discuss a little bit, you mentioned inflammation. We'll get into the whole process by which this occurs, but I do want to talk a little bit about the specific changes that occur in the macrophage or the microglial cell in particular to dictate whether it should be in that phagocytosis state where it's going and actually pruning away, or should it not touch those things? So you mentioned two things. You mentioned activity level within particular neural connection, and you mentioned certain chemical markers or chemical structures. And I imagine that those are to the level of inflammation, certain inflammatory cytokines telling nearby macrophages, nearby microglial cells to say that, hey, this isn't really being used, so let's prune this area away. Let's talk about those couple things. And you're absolutely right. It's a very intuitive process. Mother Nature's very complicated, but also sometimes keeps it pretty simple. And so, yes, microglial cells, when they are in that quiescent state and they're surveilling, they're looking around, they're not in a pro-inflammatory state in the traditional sense of fighting bacteria or viruses or pathogens or otherwise, or dealing with damage. What they're doing is they're highly ramified. And what that, that word ramified means is that they have lots and lots of processes and tendrils that are reaching out and very actively touching everything. I mean, I think they spend some large majority of their time touching synapses and just inspecting what the activity level is and what the neurotransmitter levels are. I mean, there's incredible number of receptors on these tendrils, really surveilling and gathering information back into the cell to dictate how it should be functioning. And one of the things that will happen is if it comes across a connection, a synapse that's not active, that has the, a profile that would suggest that it isn't needed, one of the things that happens is it will see on that synapse what are referred to now is sort of simply referred to as eat me signals. And the eat me signal says, okay, I'm not active enough to be wanted, therefore you should eat me. And so the microglial cell reads that. In fact, even before that, there are find me signals. So all the synapses send out or have on them chemical markers that say find me. And that allows the process to come over and start touching it. So that's how the synapses actually call the microglial cells to them. So they're find me signals. And then if it's an inactive synapse, you'll see eat me signals chemical signals. And that will trigger, it, it involves pro-inflammatory cytokines, but it is not a pro-inflammatory action. So it's very important to differentiate that the microglial cell is using pro-inflammatory signaling, but it is not using it for pro-inflammatory purposes. It's for using it for pruning purposes. That's the easiest way to describe it. And then what will happen is that the microglial cell will phagocytize that portion of that neuron, that axon, I'm sorry, that synapse, that presynaptic terminal, and it will disappear. And then that connection will be gone. If that synapse is active, then it has a separate chemical signal that is the don't eat me signal. And the don't eat me signal then tells the microglial cell, no, you can come over and inspect me. And there's something else I need you to do, but it's not to kill me. 
And what it is in that situation is down-regulating the level of excitability in that connection. It says this connection needs to be reinforced. It needs to be allowed to live and function. But what we want to do is down-regulate the amount of glutamate that will be necessary to get, it lowers the threshold or the barrier for that axon to fire. It's called long-term potentiation. It basically allows that synapse to fire more efficiently and therefore not need as much glutamate, which can be toxic. And so you don't want to have the glutamate-related excitotoxicity problem building up simply because you're building up good connections. So that clearly kind of points to certain, like the presence of glutamate at high levels being almost problematic, almost being one of those signals to say, let's lower the threshold so that we don't need as much glutamate to reinforce this particular synaptic connection and just essentially makes it way more effective, way more efficient, lower threshold, because that's essentially neuroplasticity in a nutshell being created here. We've This connection is strong enough that we don't need X amount of energy. We need X minus 10 amount of energy to be able to activate this synapse and, and get that postsynaptic membrane stimulated. And so we don't need as much glutamate to make that happen. Yeah. I think about it like a tugboat going out to bring in a large tanker into harbor. The tugboat gets a find me signal and it goes out and it finds the tanker. And then the first thing it does is it gets thrown one line and it gets one line and that connects the two together. And then from there, you don't want to put all the strain of pulling an entire tanker in on one, you know, on one rope, on one line. So what you do is you connect a whole bunch more lines from you know, various different spots on the tug to various different spots on the boat. And then you can pull the tanker in without straining any one line too vigorously or too much and snapping it. So it's a similar kind of thing, at least conceptually. Again, it's amazing to see the connections that we do. We do and make sense to us physically, but that's what's happening. That's what's happening in the brain. Are there any particular nutritional or uh, biochemical markers that are required for that eat me signal to be turned on that you're aware of? Well, um, so ATP, which is sort of the energy unit of, of the body, is one of the find me signals. There's actually quite a few that have been discovered eat me and don't eat me signals. And it's interesting, again, Mother Nature, when she finds something that works, likes to reuse it. It was actually discovered in the periphery first with respect to macrophages, the don't eat me signals. And so there's a receptor and a ligand that are used in the body and in the brain that are the don't eat me signals. And so again, you can't get too far away from your roots and microglial cells are just like macrophages in many ways. And so that eat me and don't eat me signal and the find me signal are all things that are used throughout the body. So as you can imagine, what you want to use or what they want to use are the same precursors that are used everywhere. So, you know, it's most of our diets are pretty rich in these, the compounds that are the precursors or the substrates to making these signals. Yeah, absolutely. And with ATP, the biochemical thought process here is that mitochondrial function will play a very important role in the production of that ATP. And so making sure that mitochondria are functioning well, 
having the right nutrients to be able to do that, essentially allowing for the breakdown of the metabolism of carbohydrates effectively using things like vitamin B1, B3, lipoic acid, magnesium, coenzyme Q10. And on the fat metabolism side, things like carnitine, vitamin B2 that are really necessary for that initial metabolism of our macronutrients to their chemical components that can then be input into that mitochondrial function, citric acid cycle, electron transport chain state, so that we can then produce ATP accordingly. So that'll be a really important biochemical link to this, just from a functional medicine standpoint. No, absolutely. And diet plays a big role in inflammation. And so as we think about, okay, how can this process that's so elegant and so well-designed, how can it go awry? Because clearly there are neurodevelopmental problems that aren't simply genetic. I mean, clearly if you have a genetic flaw and there's a, a missing protein or a missing enzyme or a missing receptor, things just won't function properly. And sometimes those things are lethal. There are certainly you know, some simple point mutations that render viability no longer possible. But for the most part, if everything is functioning properly, there are redundant systems. And so as a result, even if there's one problem or one flaw, the system will, will grow just as well or, or adapt to the missing single thing. But what ends up happening is we have to remember that inflammation can arise in an individual, especially an adult who's you know, well-adjusted in many different ways. Clearly injury yeah. is one, pathogen or infection can be another. Another can be stress. And I think that's one of the things that is really underappreciated and underrecognized as a really damaging thing. And it concerns me greatly because I just recently read, you know, in the news, I think other people have read it as well, that the rates of autism have skyrocketed in the last 20 years. Now, some of it may be attributable to the, you know, the better diagnoses or earlier diagnoses of it and maybe more refined diagnostic criteria. But I think going from a rate of one in a thousand or one in 2000 to one in 30, which was you know really honestly horrifying to me, that one in 30 is just such an incredibly large increase that it cannot be entirely attributable to simply doctors trying to diagnose more cases of autism. That's just not possible. And so the question is, why is that occurring? And, and I think that you know, we touched on it on an earlier episode, but I think that stress and inflammation due to diet and maybe lack of exercise and frankly, maybe too much connectivity through social media, et cetera, and the emotional stress that social media unfortunately gives us, that all of that actually leads to higher stress levels in pregnancy. And what we've seen, and we've done this in animal models, and I mean collectively we in the research community, because I haven't personally done these animal studies, but I've read about them in which they've taken animals and they've stressed the mother during pregnancy. And what they find is that the children, the litter of that pregnancy, end up behaving in ways that are mirrors of what humans experience with autism. I mean, lack of social connectivity, not reading social cues properly, cognitive challenges, communication difficulty. I mean, all of the things that are classic autism diagnostic criteria 
are seen in animals where the only distinguishing thing that was done was to create an inflammatory environment. And in some cases, simply doing it with stress, not doing it with you know, some chemical causing inflammation, but simply stressing the animal chronically over a period of time. Now that's, I just want to level set everybody. We're not talking about if you get a cold during pregnancy or if you have to pull an all-nighter once during pregnancy, you're not you know, dooming your child. But what we're talking about is that you know, the traditional idea that a pregnant woman shouldn't be stressed, should be relaxed, should be well-fed, should get a lot of sleep, all of those things that were observed and sort of passed down without any real scientific understanding as to why, well, now we understand what the consequences are. And one of the consequences is that heightened level of inflammation leads to a distraction of the microglial cells away from doing their job. And it leads to conditions like, in this case, we've been talking about autism. There are others. And really the long-term consequences of what's referred to as priming of the microglial cells. This is a way in which the microglial cells sort of permanently change their posture away from being very relaxed and quiescent and doing their job most efficiently. They move into a state of a higher level of vigilance and a pro-inflammatory potential that really is somewhat detrimental to neurodevelopment. And so Again, what we're talking about is inflammation being a negative contributor to neurodevelopment, even in utero, and how it can damage the neural structures and neural connectivity. And we see that when you do autopsies on people who have had autism and been diagnosed with autism, you can see the differences in the brain. And maybe it's worth spending just a moment to say what those differences are. The differences are higher level of connectivity. We talked earlier about the fact that in early stages of development, the neurons are just trying to connect to one another as much as possible. There's influence by the microglial cells to support that, but they're connecting like crazy so that the density of connections reaches a maximum by the time you're about two years old. And from then on, the density of connections is reduced as you become more and more proficient and we're getting rid of unwanted and unnecessary connections. What's been shown is that in autism, there is a much higher level of connectivity, that the microglial cells are distracted away from doing their pruning job. And as a result, there's over-connectivity in the system. There's an inability to have a refined sense about inputs coming into the brain, to be able to, to really focus on the most important features of an experience. And we see that even in the behaviors of autistic children, almost experiencing sort of like OCD-like behavior. And that OCD-like behavior in autism is designed or it's being utilized to try to help that individual focus and concentrate and shut out the rest of the world because they don't have the ability to sort of push away all of the over- excitation that's going on in their brain because of all the sensory inputs going on around you. I've joked before, and maybe even on this podcast, joked about the fact that in order to be a truly well-adjusted human being, you have to ignore 99% of what's going on around you. 
And if you don't have that ability because there's too much connectivity in the brain and you can't shut down connections that shouldn't be there, then you end up with sensory overload. And that sensory overload is what you see in a lot of autistic children. They can't handle environments that are dynamic. They can't handle lots of noise and lots of activity going on around them because it's sensory overload for them. Imagine being in the dentist chair at the same time you're at a dinner party while trying to give a lecture in the middle of a concert. You can't do all those things. Your brain would be in overload. And they're like that for a lot of the time because of that overconnectivity in the brain. It's not the only way that microglial dysfunction can occur and can lead to to neurodevelopmental problems. And we'll talk about other ones, but that's a big one that I'm I think is in the news right now. And it's really important because the rates are just skyrocketing. Yeah, there's no question about it. The rates are going up and it's not simply by virtue of diagnostic criteria being altered slightly or better diagnostic kind of work being done by our medical doctors, but rather there there has to be some sort of environmental trigger that's creating such a drastic change to the diagnosis of this particular condition. I do want to quickly point out or dig into it just ever so slightly with regards to if all of these connections are not being pruned and not being brought down, it's almost like multitasking to the nth degree, right? There's the inability to focus on a particular task or a particular option, similar to the point of being able to ignore 99% of what's going on. So as a side note, something that I personally experience is I've been to Las Vegas one time. And walking down the strip, that one time, halfway down the strip, I was done. I said, this is sensory overload. There's too much to see, too many sounds, too many smells, too many things happening around me. And I just didn't appreciate it. It didn't feel good to me. And I immediately said to my wife, I can't stick around here too much longer. Let's rent a car. And we rented a car and we drove to the Grand Canyon and to Sedona and just a complete sense of peace and calm came over me just being in this one space where only one thing was happening, where I just had to focus on being with my wife, being kind of there present in this area where there wasn't this sensory overload that was occurring. So I I have this understanding or this experience a little bit, and it has to do with the fact that our brains chemically have a finite amount of ATP that they can create, a finite amount of energy biochemically that can be created. And if there's too many connections that need to be supported and too many things that are ongoing in the same way that multitasking just generally doesn't result in the resolution of a single task being completed, it's the same way that none of these connections are ever truly going to be fully strengthened to the point of being able to connect stronger. So neuroplasticity is too strong and uncontrolled in a state of autism. That's what it seems to be happening neurodevelopmentally in this particular case. Yeah. And we haven't discussed the importance of sleep, but sleep is the time when it's a very complicated process, sleep, but it's obviously something that's evolutionarily conserved because literally almost every animal that's multicellular has some rest cycle that it goes through. And it's really important that that process be allowed to function to completion because during that sleep process, that's when all of that long-term potentiation takes place. That's when all that down-regulation of excitability that's built up during the day, during consciousness, being awake is happening. And so 
the importance of sleep really can't be overstated. It's too important to ever be able to be overstated. But I want to just make certain I do say one thing, which is because I spent a lot of time talking about how all this inflammation can happen when the mother is pregnant. But that's only one way. Certainly, overexcitation and the failure of the microglial cells to do their job properly can also happen in early childhood. And that priming process of microglial cells can certainly happen outside, you know, outside of pregnancy during the postnatal period as well. And there are signs that are, that are in the literature and in the statistics that show that, that children, especially boys, because there is a sex difference in how this priming affects children, but that especially among boys, if there is an extreme or significant inflammatory challenge that occurs in the first couple of years of life, that can also lead to higher levels of autism diagnoses shortly thereafter. So we have to be very cognizant of that. And, and ultimately, I hope that what we're going to find is that there's a genetic predisposition to it, that some people are just more susceptible to it. And if we can ultimately identify what that genetic profile is, then for those children, we may be able to have some sort of prevention that just carries them through those first few years of life without allowing them to be challenged immunologically or from an inflammatory standpoint, just to allow that process to get through those critical stages of pruning early on in life. Now, will that be satisfactory? No, there are other conditions that can also arise. Maybe it's not related to that genetic profile, but the other ones are things like ADHD. There are lots of personality aspects of ADHD that suggest that there's improper connectivity going on in the central nervous system, in some cases too much connectivity, in some cases too little, but that there's sort of this disorganized pruning process that's taking place that leads to ADHD. Now, fortunately, what we've seen is that for many people with ADHD, they sort of outgrow it. And I want to be careful not to suggest that all of the symptoms go away, but probably more compensatory or coping skills take over. And once a person who's a child with ADHD reaches adulthood, their brains may still work differently, but from a social integration standpoint, they're capable of participating in a way that doesn't appear symptomatic in society. And again, that different organization of the brain may actually benefit them in some way. There may be there may be ways in which you know it helps them be more creative or take on a different career path that other people can't handle, but they can. So I don't want to think of ADHD as that disabling for life. It's not. It most likely isn't. But something that is, is schizophrenia. And schizophrenia is actually sort of the opposite of autism in the sense that schizophrenia appears to be an overly exuberant continuation of the pruning process. Now, whether that pruning process continues indiscriminately, or if it continues at a level that is not necessarily respectful of the sensory and activity dependence of connections. You know, we talked earlier about how microglial cells are supposed to reinforce connections that are strong and prune away ones that aren't, that are weak. Well, if that process is dysfunctional through inflammation or prime microglia or genetic predisposition or otherwise, if they continue to prune, but they do so indiscriminately, 
they're going to prune away connections that are important. And so what we see in the autopsies of patients who have schizophrenia or had schizophrenia during life, what you see is that there's a significant amount of both white matter, so those long connections between different areas of the brain, so that connectivity is lost in many cases. And there's also just even within the local region, there's a fair amount of synaptic loss. So the connectivity is just not there. And I think we talked about this on an earlier episode, but one of the things that's been seen is that in the modeling of artificial intelligence systems, if you have too few connections, you end up with the system behaving in a schizophrenic way. In fact, Google has a program that is sort of popular for a while. There were some YouTube videos about it that their AI system could hallucinate. It could see things where the visual image wasn't there. So all of a sudden they could program it to see dogs where there weren't dogs. So it would take cues for a dog being the minor cues that it sees that are features of dogs. And it would suddenly put a dog's face in the visual picture where it shouldn't have been. That's what's going on in schizophrenia. There's missing connections. And as a result, there's this dysfunction that, that can hallucinate both visually and auditory hallucinations and otherwise. And so that's one of the clinical manifestations of this lack of connectivity or disjointed connectivity is drawing conclusions and seeing things that aren't there. So yeah. you, we've so. got early on in development with over pruning, excuse me, under pruning, we get into the stage state of almost autism. And then slightly later on when over pruning occurs in that kind of teenage-ish age timeline where it becomes over pruned, we start to lose a lot of those synaptic connections and filling the gaps is almost what is happening in those cases where schizophrenia is then diagnosed, where they're filling the gaps with hallucinations or things that appear to be perceived by the sufferer that don't actually exist or are not physically present in the visual field. Yeah. The creation of delusions is a drawing of conclusions from data that's not there or connections yeah. inappropriate. And unfortunately, those conditions are pretty devastating. It's pretty difficult to survive in modern society without some way of correcting it. But the good news is that there are some medications out there that were originally developed for other purposes that are now being shown to have positive impacts on microglial cells. Now, there's still lots of testing going on and the results are not in yet, but things like minocycline. Minocycline is a form of an antibiotic, I believe in the tetracycline family, and it has the effect of quieting microglial cells down. And so by quieting them down, we stop the damage that's being done as a result of inflammation. Now, whether or not that's something that in the long run helps prevent autism or prevent schizophrenia, time will tell. But there are other drugs. I'm just picking out one. And there's other things that can be done. I mean, we've talked in the past, and we'll probably get to it in this conversation, about modulating the autonomic nervous system. Because at the end of the day, the autonomic nervous system does have a strong influence on the innate immune system. They're really two sides of the same coin, as we've discussed before. But before we go there, I want to just talk a little bit about how in adulthood, we continue to have this creation of new brain cells 
and the integration of those cells into the network. It doesn't happen everywhere in the brain. It happens only in very specific areas. For example, in the hippocampus, where we're storing new memories and where a lot of learning happens, new learning and new memory formation. That involves a lot of new cells being created and new connections being made and pruned away based on activity and remembering things. That's why reinforcing things that you try once allows you to remember it better. So we all experience, you know, having to remember somebody's telephone number, although maybe not so much anymore, we just plug it into our cell phones. But, you know, the way we used to, we'd recite it, we'd say that number. And then, you know, 15 minutes later, we would think about it again. And we'd say it again to ourselves. We say, yeah, yeah, it's nine, four, two, six, you know, that sort of thing. And by doing that, and having different sensory inputs that are giving us the same information, it reinforces that process. And all that reinforcement is taking place inside the hippocampus with microglial cells, pruning away the network of connections of new cells and pruning away cells that shouldn't be there. Now, when we experience inflammation, whether it be, for example, in surgery, you know, we go in for a surgery, surgery is a perfect example, or staying up for an entire night, you know, pulling an all-nighter and being up for 36 hours. What happens is there's a sufficient amount of inflammation that builds up either peripherally and then activates central inflammation or just central inflammation that it disrupts our ability to form those memories, but it's temporary, generally temporary. I mean, obviously, if you stay up for a month straight, that's going to probably lead to some permanent damage. But you know, short-term inflammatory conditions lead to sort of cognitive dysfunction. In fact, there's even a term for post-operative cognitive dysfunction that occurs where there's a sufficient amount of inflammation in the body that you have some cognitive difficulties. When it's more chronic, where that inflammation is chronic, you see it, for example, in autoimmune diseases and in obesity and in depression, where there's a significant amount of long-term central inflammation, drug addiction, you see that also, and traumatic brain injury. All of these, these examples that I'm sort of throwing out right now are examples of traumatic or chronic inflammatory states that lead to a cognitive dysfunction. And so we're becoming aware now in the literature and talking about it, that patients who have these conditions have associated with them some cognitive dysfunction that is, in some cases, permanent. In other cases, it's reversible simply by reversing the ongoing inflammatory problem. We see it in depression. For example, one of the side effects of successfully treating depression, especially depression associated with inflammation, is there's a restoration of cognitive function that was sort of hindered or dysfunctional during the clinical state when they were symptomatic. Fortunately, in adulthood, because the brain is largely plastic and can sort of can respond, there's provided it developed properly initially, it will restore itself. So you're sort of in a safe zone from, you know, maybe 25 to 55. <laughs> and I'm approaching that. So that other end of it. So I want to make certain maybe it lasts a little bit longer than that. But that's what happens in adulthood. Once you get to old age, we talked about this before sort of a chronic level of insults and other challenges that have occurred in the immune system over a lifetime start to catch up. 
And what can happen, as I mentioned before, is a reversion back to the earlier state of over pruning. And sometimes that can be sort of a global phenomenon. Sometimes it can be a genetically triggered phenomenon. And sometimes it can just be a function of the fact that that's the way brains work. So for example, aggregates of proteins like amyloid beta, amyloid beta is in everybody's brain and aggregates of it exist in all elderly brains. But in some cases that microglial cells that have been primed will respond in a way that's inflammatory and lead to a pruning, over exuberant pruning, which is one of the reasons why we talk about if that pruning is happening on an activity or a sensory dependent way, then one thing that can really help prevent the onset of it or the progression of it is to stay active, stay socially engaged, go traveling, continue to challenge yourself intellectually, learn a new language in old age, write a book, write a novel, write screenplays, do math, do those math problems. You know, we all get them advertisements on our phone for math problems and puzzle solving, helping you stay active. And there's some truth to it. There's real truth to keeping the brain active, keeps those pathways active, keeps that microglial pruning, which frankly shouldn't be going on, but is because of old age and because of a lifetime of challenges, we can stave it off. Now, is that going to completely stave it off? Probably not. But there are some really exciting technologies and techniques that are available today and being tested to see whether or not it can prevent degeneration. We've talked about vagus nerve stimulation being one of them, but before we go there, there's one that's really at the cutting edge of today's science, which is sort of akin to a bone marrow ablation and bone marrow transplant, where you do that in some forms of cancer uh, and leukemia. You just literally say, okay, these are the cells that are causing the problem. They're in the bone marrow. So we're just going to take all your bone marrow out and we're going to replace it with a graft from someone else or even your own. We can do the same thing in the central nervous system. If the problem is the microglial cells, mm -hmm. it turns out that there are certain chemicals and frankly, they've been tried before in other applications, but these chemicals have the ability to preferentially or isolate and only destroy microglial cells. So basically we're saying when the microglial cells are causing all these problems, let's just get rid of them and then allow them to repopulate naturally. And so what we've seen in some early studies, again, this is the field that's really very early, but the idea is that if you can do what's called microglial depletion, so deplete the number of microglial cells in your brain, maybe by 90 or even 99% over a short period of time, you can tolerate that with respect to some of the consequences that that might have over a short period of time of a week or two, and then allow those that survive in the brain to repopulate. And by doing so, we can and have seen some pretty remarkable results in animal models of reversing or at least completely stopping the progression of some neurodegenerative disorders, things like ALS, things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. Of course, it doesn't work everywhere. And there's lots of things that microglial cells do that you don't want to get rid of and some protection that it provides and in the healing process or dealing with problems that are occurring. So they've tried it in things like TBI. They've tried it in stroke. They've tried it in sickness behavior when you get a, an infection. And in those situations, 
it doesn't appear to work. In some cases, it can actually make things worse because that's a situation in which microglial cells, at least from my perspective, those are situations in which the microglial cells aren't the problem. They're part of the solution. So if you get rid of them, then you're getting rid of part of the solution. It may not be a solution you like. I mean, stroke is a perfect example where, you know, there's resolution that has to happen of that damage. And we not, may not like how the microglial cells do it. They don't, may not do the job that we want them to do, but it's still necessary. And if you get rid of them, it can get worse. Whereas in something like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease, it is in fact the microglial cells that are doing a lot of the damage. And they're doing it because they're in a pathological state. Getting rid of them and replacing them, that's a good thing or it can be a good thing. I don't want to say that it is because it's still yet to be learned, but it is a very aggressive approach. Is, yeah. um, microglial depletion and repopulation is a very aggressive approach, and it would not be something that you would do unless it was a dire circumstance, much the same way you don't do bone marrow transplants just to sort of get over chickenpox. And so it's a very aggressive thing. And there are other ways. We talked about minocycline and other drugs that can modulate microglial cells, but Vagus nerve stimulation is the one that keeps coming back into the limelight because it has so few side effects and it does what is sort of the natural reset of the immune system, both centrally and peripherally. Yeah, it almost sounds like the microglial depletion almost fits this idea akin to almost like a surgical removal. But the good news is you can always kind of recharge those, the microglial cells that are present, but you're obviously doing something that isn't entirely natural. You're essentially knocking out a whole ton of very important cells. And so why not consider the idea of using a tool that we know can potentially shift microglial activity from that pro-inflammatory hypervigilant state into that more progenitor state again, where it's just doing the pruning and just doing the maintenance work that it should ideally be doing in older age. Yeah. And that's what vagus nerve stimulation is designed to do. It's the most natural of all the different processes we've talked about, obviously depleting your brain of 10% of its mass, which is, you know, 99% of your microglial cells would make up about 10% of your brain mass is not necessarily the way to go. If it's something that can be done in another way, I'm not saying that that's not a potentially remarkable treatment, but it is a very aggressive one. The, the vagus nerve stimulation one is the one that I find to be sort of the easiest to imagine being positive because what it's doing is it's just telling the microglial cells not to move into that aggressive, into that aggressive pruning, over pruning state. It's not telling it not to do its normal work. It's just trying to push it away from doing it in a pathological way. Yeah, absolutely. So for those who are new to kind of hearing about vagus nerve stimulation, we're talking particularly about exercises and therapeutic approaches of electrotherapy to stimulate the vagus nerve overall. And so exercise-wise, things like Gregorian chants, deep breathing exercises, let's dig into a couple of these. Yeah, like the gargling, gag reflex activation, singing, humming, these are all simple little tools that practice compounded over a period of time will help to activate the vagus nerve, will help to activate those particular pathways to the nucleus tractus solitarius, which is going to 
stimulate the nucleus bacillus of Maynard's internally in the central nervous system to secrete more acetylcholine. And that's going to stimulate acetylcholine production throughout the entire brain and activate those microglial cells to shift from its pro-inflammatory M1 style pro-inflammatory state into the M2 anti-inflammatory pruning, even building state as well. And so when we stimulate the vagus nerve, yes, we're going to have that vagus nerve effect in an efferent pathway from the neck downwards, but we're also going to have an effect upwards into that central nervous system. So it actually stimulates acetylcholine production, both peripherally, but also centrally within the nervous system. Yeah, no, it's a very exciting discovery. Uh, it's about 20, a little more than 20 years old with respect to the periphery and understanding how the pathway of the efferent vagus can trigger this anti-inflammatory process that's in mediated in various different organs, primarily in the spleen, but it's also present in the liver and in other, in the gut in very important ways. But the central connectivity of the path or to this cholinergic anti-inflammatory pathway has I think so many profound potential applications ranging from just prevention of some of these neurodevelopmental conditions through just cognitive enhancement during adulthood to preventing or slowing the progression of uh, neurodegenerative disorders. And I think that's worth mentioning that even if it doesn't cure the neurodegenerative disorder, one of the goals of treating things like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease is just preventing its onset for a decade. You know, so if instead of getting the early stages of dementia at age 75, you get it at 85 or 90, well, chances are something else is going to get you. But it's giving you a tremendous amount of quality of life for you and for people around you and your loved ones for a decade or more. So simply taking the steps of, as you said, deep breathing exercises, meditation. I'm not sure the average person is going to want to get into Gregorian chants, and I'm fairly certain that your neighbors aren't <laughs> going to want to do that. But fortunately, there are other ways of doing it. Exercise is a great way. And as you said, there are some technologies out there, both electrical and physical and chemical, that can stimulate the vagus nerve. And there are more every day that are being discovered or invented. And those have the ability to literally from cradle to grave, from even before the cradle to the grave, help prevent neurodevelopmental problems, microglial dysfunction, cognitive dysfunction, and even sort of inhibit the damage that would be done by lifestyle choices that you know, being overweight or being sedentary or otherwise, those things are you know, damaging, but to the extent that you use vagus nerve activation techniques or technologies, you can minimize the consequences both right at that moment, but also over the long-term preventing those perpetual or constant or frequent insults that ultimately lead those priming events that to primed microglial cells being more prone to being damaging late in life. So obviously we want to promote good, healthy habits of eating, exercise, sleeping. We should do an entire episode on sleep and then talk about the long-term benefits of all of those things, including think of it as an additional vitamin that you take. Spend the time 
you're doing something good for your body and use a technology or a technique to stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system, your vagus nerve, so that you can, in the long run, live a happier, healthier, and more emotionally stable life as well. We did not spend a lot of time talking about some of the more mood-related or stress-related consequences of microglial cells. Maybe that should be an episode in and of itself because of how many drugs like, you know, Wellbutrin and Paxil and all the rest of the SSRIs and SNRIs that are being sent out into the world without really understanding whether or not the consequences that are being experienced, the, the symptoms that are being experienced could be treated in a way that won't have the same consequences that those drugs have. Yeah, there's no question about it. I do believe we've got about two more episodes that we've just thought about today while we were discussing this. So we definitely have more to discuss. And today's episode was wonderful. Absolutely loved the discussion today. It was great for those who A, are clinicians that really want to potentially understand the mechanisms by which neural development happens and pathologies or dysfunction can create challenges internally and lead to a lot of these conditions, as well as those who want to just take control of their own health, right? These are people that want to extend their longevity, extend their their health span, not just their lifespan, but rather to be present and to be functional for as long as possible. And so I think this is a great place for us to uh, call it a great episode and let everybody know that if you learned something here today, or if there's somebody around you that you want to share this with, please feel free to. And it was a great episode. So thanks so much, JP. Yeah, I think it was a great episode too. I would just add as my sort of final parting comment or hopeful statement is that I don't want people to think that all of these conditions that we've been discussing today, that once they've been diagnosed or once they've been experienced, that they're not reversible. Some obviously will have long lasting damage, but some are, in fact, not only can we stop their progression, but sometimes they can be reversible, especially ones in children. I never want to give up hope that some of these things can be reversed. And so even if you're seeing the telltale signs of autism or schizophrenia or other things, the brain is a, such a wonderful thing. And if you give it the right circumstances, change the diet, change the exercise, activate the vagus nerve, take a drug that can force those microglial cells back into appropriate behavior, I think there's healing that's potentially possible. And I think that there's a, an opportunity to reverse the trend. And even in the people who've been diagnosed, reverse that number of one in 30 kids being born with autism or having autism by the time they're five or six years old is just devastating and we need to fix it. And I think there's ways of doing that, that we can start today. We don't have to wait 20 years for science to, or medicine to bring us a new pill to take. We can do things today. And so I encourage everybody to do those things, especially pregnant moms and moms, make sure your kids are doing the right things and we'll just have a better world as a result. So was a great episode. Thank you again for participating and having me be your partner in this season. It's been a great journey so far, and I look forward to continuing. Thank you for those amazing, empowering words. If you're looking to upgrade your health and do some work here with regards to supporting your personal development, your patient's development, or that of your family, continue listening. We've got lots of great info that's coming up in future episodes. And like I said, again, share with anyone that you feel could use this valuable information. Have a wonderful day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Mm -hmm.